you. Thank you all for praying. Uh, there are many things going on in our church and in our community and in the world that uh, we can definitely identify with um, the brokenness in the world. And we are talking about suffering, pain, and difficulty, and we're in a series currently entitled Pain, Presence, Comfort, Joy. And even in the midst of pain, God's presence is revealed. And when God's presence is revealed, he brings comfort. And when you experience his comfort, you ultimately experience the greatest amount of joy you could ever experience. And so that's our series. And last week we began with Mark chapter 4, and we looked at Jesus with his disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. And what we learned is what the disciples received was rescue from the storm. And they received rescue from Jesus. And when they were terrified at the storm, they became even more terrified at Jesus. And what we realized and what we learned last week is even in the midst of pain, what God is doing in the midst of your pain is bringing a solution that is often more terrifying than the problem itself. Because when God invades your life, he shows up in a very powerful way and things begin to change. This morning we're going to look at the book of Job. It's one of the oldest stories in the Bible. It's a story about a man who was very prosperous, very godly, and he suffered deeply and greatly. And Satan had his way with Job. We learn from this narrative that Job suffered the hands of an evil force in the world. And yet, the evil in the world does not get the last say. As we jump to the very end of the story in Job chapter 38, when God finally speaks after all that Job experiences and suffers, it says, the Lord answers Job from the whirlwind. And so in last week's message, the storm was the problem, and this week's it's the solution. God shows up as a powerful storm and quiets and silence, silences all questions about why he does what he does. We just sang a beautiful song about how he loves us. C.S. Lewis says, be careful with that word love. Don't use it in a trivial way. Love needs to be really redefined so that we truly understand what it means when God says he loves us. We don't throw out these little trivial ideas about God's love, but we really think about it. And in this particular song, he's jealous for me. Love is like a hurricane. Well, in our passage here in Job chapter 42, what happens? God shows up in his love in a whirlwind, in a hurricane, in a storm. And then it says here, I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. You know what our problem is? We've eclipsed the glory by our afflictions. We can't see the glory because our afflictions have eclipsed God. And what we learn in the story of Job is that Job comes to the understanding that no, it doesn't matter how deep or how hard or how horrific the suffering might be, how life-lasting it could be, it cannot eclipse the glory of God if we truly understand God's love. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at three things that we learn from Job in this story 
about God and about his love for us. You know, uh, the Player Tribune wrote an article uh, March just this year. And the article entitlement, was, the title of the article is Everyone is Going Through Something. It's a story of Kevin Love, forward for the Cleveland Cavaliers. 29 years of age. On November 5th, right after halftime against the Hawks, I had a panic attack. It came out of nowhere. I'd never had one before, and I didn't even know if they were, what they were. I didn't know if they were real or not. But this was real. As real as broken hand or a sprained ankle. Since that day, almost everything about the way I think about my mental health has changed. That's what he said. And he said he got off the field, got off the court, walked into the locker room and just wandered around and finally got help. He didn't know what was hit. It, just, it hit him so fast, so hard, he didn't know what it was. And whether you're here this morning and you have, you have a mental, you are, you are being just, you're in anguish because of something mentally going on or something physically happening to you, something spiritually, we need to understand that in a moment like that, everything changes. Your whole perspective changes when you encounter suffering. Would you not agree? Suffering has a way of changing our perspective on what's really important in life. And that's why we want to look at Job this morning. Job had a firm conviction in God why God had put him on this earth. And he lived every day of his life knowing who God was, putting him first in his life. He was also a very prosperous man. He worked hard. But yet the one thing that Job missed is the opportunity to respond to suffering, what I call untested faith. And every single one of us in life, our faith will be tested. Suffering will happen, and we will have the opportunity to respond to it. In James chapter 1.13, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Never forget that as we look at this. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, what does not kill me makes me stronger. It's one thing to get caught up in a storm and make it to the other side. It's another, quite another, to feel the crushing blow of absolute total loss, chaos in your life, life-altering events that totally change your perspective. Tragedy does more than rip away our present, says Sheryl Sandberg. It tears apart our hopes for our future. Whether it's death or loss or divorce or a shattered dream, these are the ones that are most difficult for us. And so when we approach Job, we are really asking the question, how is he going to deal with it? So in Job chapter 1, it begins. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity, feared God, stayed away from evil. And he was also very prosperous. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of, of oxen, 500 female donkeys, many servants. It says then in verse 6 that one day the members of the heavenly court had gathered and before God, I'm reading from the Living Translation, by the way. This is not a throwaway Bible. This is actually the Bible in the last four months that I have been reading. and I've been pouring over Job to provide personal comfort to me as I was going through my own affliction 
And so I'm reading from the very Bible in which I wrote my notes and poured over, asking God for his help and guidance. And it says in this heavenly court, the accuser Satan shows up. And the Lord asked him where he'd been, and he says, roaming the earth. And God was the one who then said, have you considered my servant Job? Have you seen that one? In your wanderings, have you passed by Job because he's, he, he's a servant of mine. He loves me. And then Satan has a great idea. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And then Satan says, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his homes and his property. You've made him prosper in everything. He does look rich because he is rich. But rage out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And so God allows, in his sovereignty, evil to touch the life of Job. We don't understand why. Job doesn't understand why. Job is not privy to this conversation. This is a heavenly conversation between God and the originator of evil, Satan himself. And God allows it but says, you cannot take his life. And he goes after Job. The messengers begin coming back and his oxen were plowing and they were wiped out and his family, his children were wiped out. Fire set, uh, set far, uh, his uh, barns were set fire and, and, and lost everything at the hands of Satan. And yet it says in verse 20, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshiped God. It says, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise be the name of the Lord God. Job had succeeded in going through the greatest affliction, and yet he did not curse God. So Satan enters back into the heavenly realm. And God once again says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? I mean, look how he serves me. Look how he loves me. Even in affliction, he still serves me and loves me. Have you noticed that? And then Satan says, yes, but skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his own life. In other words, health for health. As long as he has his health, he will praise you. You take away his health, he will stop praising you. Again, God allows Satan the opportunity to afflict Job once more. We don't understand why. We don't understand the big picture of what God is doing. But he does allow Satan to inflict Job with boils and ulcers and rashes and just, just physical ailments that are beyond belief that one person would have to endure. But spare his life but spare his life. It says then in verse 10, you talk a foolish talk, woman. He's talking to his wife who the previous verse said, you just need to curse God and die. You just need to get it over with, Job. Can't you see God is not on your side anymore? Can't you see it's all been stacked against you? Just curse him and die. You have talked like a foolish woman. 
Should we accept only good things from the Lord and never anything bad? I mean, really, is God just the one who gives us good things? And when something bad happens, we change our view of God. Just like that. He's no longer good because of what's happened to you. Job said nothing wrong. In fact, three of his friends show up. They see his suffering, and it is so great, they begin wailing loudly. They tore their robes, threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him. Seven days and seven nights, no one said a word to Job, for they saw that his sufferings were too great for words. The first point that I want to make this morning from Job chapter 1 and 2 is this. That God allows evil, but God keeps Satan evil on a short leash. We may not understand what God is doing, but don't forget this. God is still in control. Even in the midst of the worst of suffering, what we learn here when God says, this far but no further, this far you may go but no further, he is saying to evil in the world, I have you on a short leash. And though the world has fallen, I will redeem it. God is saying a number of things. He's first of all saying that he's not the author of evil. James reminds us that we are tempted. We're not tempted by God because God can be tempted by evil. Because God is not the originator. He does not originate evil whatsoever. God is still in control. You may go this far, Satan. Evil and harm can go just this far, but no further. Demonstrates the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of pain and difficulty. And I wrote in my notes, it could be far worse if Satan had his way. Far worse. Satan could do far more damage. He could do far more things evil in the world today if God had not had him unleash this long. The third thing I learned about this is that one day all will be restored. We must remember that. That one day, it says in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The anxious longing of creation eagerly waits. It's waiting. It's waiting for the day. Creation is waiting to be set free. We ourselves, it says in Romans 8, are groaning, waiting for the day that we will become fully adopted children of God. The redemption, the full redemption of our bodies. But yet, in this life, we experience evil. Luke Ferry, in his book, A Brief History of Time, a fascinating book on different worldviews, and he argues for the Christian worldview. And he says it makes the most sense of the world. But in it, he talks about the devil. And he says, the devil is the one who, spiritually speaking, does everything in his power to separate us. Diabolos. Diabolos in Greek meaning the one who divides. From the vertical link uniting true believers with God. Satan wants to divide you. And how he divides us is bringing about suffering in our lives. And difficulty and affliction. And the more he does, his objective is to destroy your relationship with God. His primary objective is to destroy it. And God is trying to overcome that. And will one day 
fully overcome that. But we must be very, very careful not to blame God for evil. And C.S. Lewis's great little book, The Problem of Pain, a fascinating book on understanding why there is pain. Lewis actually says, it's a little book, it's a short book, but it's powerful. I've read it several times. And in this particular book, he says that Christianity doesn't solve the problem, he actually creates the problem of pain. I love that. I love, I love the way it creates rather than solves the problem of pain, for pain would be no problem. No problem whatsoever. Unless, side by side with our daily experience of this painful world, we had received what we think a good assurance that ultimate reality is righteous and loving. Side by side, the reality of the affliction in your life is the knowing, the thought, the hope that something outside of it is even greater. That there's something better ahead of us. There's something better than the pain and difficulty that you're going through. And so Christianity not only offers that hope and that solution, but it raises our awareness of how bad it really is. So that you become more interested in what's even better. And we don't live in our pain in some way. Frederick Nietzsche, who was a nihilist, nihilist he was the one who said following an 1883 volcanic eruption, Indonesia, Java, was wiped out. 200,000 people. His response was in his writings, 200,000 wiped out at a stroke. How magnificent. He was just staying consistent with his atheistic, humanistic perspective on suffering. That if there is no God, then pain is meaningless. That it really doesn't matter whether you suffer pain or whether it's good or bad. It doesn't really matter. There's no difference because there's no moral standard. There's no value. There's no way to evaluate what is good and what is bad. And Lewis says that's what drove him to Christianity. As an atheist, he realized that an atheist has a greater problem. And that problem is he can't make sense out of pain. No one would say 200,000 lives are, would be magnificent. Lost is magnificent. Unless, of course, you have no understanding of something better coming. And that's where we start the book of Job. That's what God wants us to understand about evil. A short leash. One day it will be over, but not yet. The second thing I realize in this passage is that Job suffers and laments, but God never curses God. Notice in both those sections, chapter 1, verse 21, I came naked into the world, naked I go. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Praise be the name of the Lord. It's, it's just Job understands that we come into this world, we accumulate things, and one day we die. And we leave it all behind. And we go back to be with the Lord. God is in control, full control. And so I honor him. And then the other passage that we read is that you talk a foolish line, woman, should you not accept both good and bad, bad at the hand of the Lord. Job said nothing wrong. He said nothing wrong whatsoever. See, even in his hardship, even in his suffering, even in his lament, you do not find from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 37 his conversations that he's having with his three friends that then begin to speak up and give Job reasons why he's suffering. You suffer because... Moral people suffer when they do something wrong. You must have done something wrong. So repent and get restored. Now God's going to 
change the answer to that and say that's not actually true. All people suffer. All people go through affliction. The righteous, the unrighteous. That it's just because you did something wrong does not mean you suffer. Yes, sometimes that is true. But it's not always true. And Job's friends were trying to basically say, you have sinned in some area of your life. That's why you've lost everything. So therefore, it's your fault. So you better repent and come back to God. It wasn't the point at all. It wasn't what God was trying to show Job. But even in the midst of hearing that feedback from his friends, Job never curses God. There's a lot of suffering, which I call physical pain, and lamenting, which I call religious pain. See, there's physical pain that you're enduring right now. There's something hard going on in your life. And Job even says it in chapter 3. He says, let the day of my birth be erased. Verse 11, why wasn't I just born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from my womb? This is really hard language. Job is suffering. Why did I even live if this is how I have to live? He is asking a very honest question, and he's dealing with it head on, and he's realizing he's going through great suffering. Oh, why give light to these miseries? Verse 20 of chapter 3. And life to those who are bitter. They long for death, and it won't come. They search for death more eagerly than for hidden treasure. They'll be filled with joy when they finally die, Job says. Rejoice when they find the grave. Why is life given to those with no future? Those God has surrounded with difficulties. He's being honest, but he doesn't curse God. He doesn't blame God. He's just wondering why this is. And he's going through this great suffering. But he also goes through tremendous lament. And tremendous lament, we see that over and over again, though he says, God slay me, I will not, I will not curse him. I will not. He recognized that he's being slayed. He recognizes the hardship and the evil that is being done to him. But he will not curse God. And so in this particular section, the middle of the story, we learn of this remarkable man that goes through lamenting and suffering but never opens his mouth and curses God. Does not blame God. Reminds me of uh, John chapter 11, a remarkable passage of scripture where Jesus has these three friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They're from Bethany. And he spends some time with them every once in a while when he has time between his ministry. And in this particular case, he's out ministering, and they come to him and tell him that his friend Lazarus is sick, and he probably will die if Jesus doesn't come and do something. And he doesn't. And you know the story in John 11. He doesn't actually go to Lazarus. In fact, he says in John chapter 11, verse 4, Lazarus will not die. He will die, but I'll raise him again. They didn't understand that. And, by the way, it will be for the glory of God. It will be, this will be for the glory of God. Lazarus' pain and difficulty of having to literally physically die and go through the process of resurrection was for God's glory, not Lazarus' glory. And that's what Jesus says. He shows up, by the way. Lazarus is dead. He not only weeps, he is bitterly angry, it says. The text says he is angry because Jesus hates 
the consequence of sin and evil, which is death. Which is what he came to wipe out. But not yet. Not yet. I love John Piper. John Piper, over 10 years ago, was using this as a text for a sermon that he would give on colleges, college campuses, Christian campuses around the nation. And he pointed out this, do you really understand what it means to suffer for the glory of God? Do you, young people, understand that God may allow you to suffer for his glory? Do you get that? Are you aware? And then he asked the question, what is love? What really is love? I mean, really, we talk about the love of God. What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. No, that's really harsh because we want healing. I want healing. And we hold out for healing because God is a God of healing, power, and does heal. But what we ultimately want is something even greater than a healing. The full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? What will give you the full and eternal joy? The answer of this text is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God. Seeing, admiring, marveling, and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When someone is willing to die, or let your brother die... To give you and your brother that he loves you. He really loves you. And then ask this question to the college students sitting in the auditorium. He asks this one question. Do you feel more loved by God when he makes much of you or through the cross allows you to use your life to make much of him? That is a very serious question. Does God show more love to you because he takes care of you, because he loves you, because he gives you all the creature comforts of life? Or he allows you in your suffering to make much more of him than you? That's a difficult, that's a very difficult question to answer. It's a harder one to live, and I recognize that. I personally understand how it is for us to be in that place in suffering And wonder, how is the glory of God better than my healing? And the old adage is true. Let me fall if I must. The one I become will catch me. The third thing we learn in this story of Job starts in Job chapter 38. I've already read it. The Lord answers Job from the whirlwind. The storm that scares and frightens the disciples is the storm in the Old Testament that brings comfort. And it brings comfort because it silences all questions. Notice what God says. God finally, now at the end of the life of Job, the story ends, and Job says, everybody be quiet. I will now make sense of everything. And he says this, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourselves like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Tell me if you know so much. 
who determined its dimensions, stretched out the surveying line, supports its foundation, laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? As I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused dawn to rise in the east? Oh, it just keeps going and going and going. And God, like a maternal mother, maternal instincts as a mother would have for their children, describes his love and concern and care and protection over all the earth and over all life. And, and, and 38, 39, and 40, all the way into 41, we find God's love and care. And we find this whirlwind, this storm, is literally a presence. That's what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a physical, it's powerful, it's overwhelming. And it makes everything else appear small and insignificant in comparison. How can you argue with the mother of earth? How could you possibly question God's intentions when God is the author and the caregiver of all life and all creation? As I said last week, sometimes the solution to your problem is more terrifying than the problem itself. Because when God solves your problem, he enters your life like a whirlwind. And it is more powerful than a storm. And he wants to bring about life change in your life. God is not your caddy. He's not carrying your clubs for you through life. He is a surgeon desiring to fix you, to make you better, to work on you, to bring about something new and profound. He crushes in a moment all self-righteousness. See, Job easily could have said, why are you doing this to me, God? We are here because we deserve it. And I earned that favor through my righteous living, God. He could have easily said that. I stand here with all the favor of God because of my righteous works. That's self-righteousness. And God silences it. He silences everyone with a presence. God, we owe nothing to you. God owes nothing to us. God gives the answer to all our questions. Why God does not speak harshly to Job, I find so fascinating. He doesn't turn and say, Job, why would you ever think? Why would you ever? Why, why did you say that? Because ultimately, God will take all the suffering upon himself, even Job's wrongdoing upon himself through Christ one day. God will do that. One particular philosopher said, the reason why I have to believe in God is because God has skin in the game. He's a God who suffers. And any God that suffers is a real God. And what we find here is that God, it says that God shows up as a mother caring for, showing delight and care and concern. And then it says this, twice, 
Job chapter 40, verse 2. Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic. Do you have the answers? Job responds, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. I have nothing more to say. I am in awe of one thing and one thing only. In chapter 42, he says it again. I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdoms with such ignorance? It is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things too far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Verse 5 of chapter 42. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job is silenced. I have no more questions. Eleanor Stump wrote a remarkable work on what she calls the best theodicy explainable. A theodicy is an explanation of how God can be good, morally just and good, and allow evil. That's what theodicy means. How do we explain that? How do we put those two things together? And for centuries, we've been debating how to argue best for it. And in her work, a remarkable work called Wandering in Darkness, 450 pages, 200 pages of footnotes. She's a philosopher, professor of philosophy, St. Louis University. And it's a remark, I'm not even finished yet. But I read through her section on Job. She looks at the narratives of Job and Samson and Abraham and and Mary in the New Testament as different kinds of suffering that we experience. Some shame, some upon ourselves, some because life just happens. Some loss of desire like Abraham. And she helps us understand why it is that God is still good and what he's doing in the midst of it. And in this particular case, Eleanor Stump says in Wandering in Darkness about Job, Job's suffering is swallowed up by the maternal loving nature of God displayed in his love and concern for his creation. If an innocent person suffers, then it will, be only, it will only because of good and a loving God engaged in what she calls a second person interaction with his creatures. This second person interaction is what happens in Job 38 to 42. God shows up and speaks to Job personally. And in one word, God answers all of his questions. My presence. My presence. If you just experienced my presence, you would understand everything about what you will go through in life. It will make sense of everything. And Stump says that this second person interactions is God showing his love for Job, even in the midst of suffering. This is the explanation of why Job had to suffer. One word, presence. I am here, Job. I am all here for you. Just you and me. Lawson, who wrote a book called When All Hell Breaks Loose, a commentary on Job, says true comfort comes in not seeing the other side of the tapestry, but in seeing the one who designs and weaves the tapestry. 
Not knowing why, but who is really the answer. I remember that twice during my bout with diverticulitis and surgery, and I talked a little bit about it last week, and, and there were two instances. The first one was the morning I woke up at the day of the surgery, and I had been tormented. I feel like Satan, the accuser, was attacking me with lies, accusing, God doesn't love you. You're not going to make it. This isn't going to work out. It's not going to go the way you planned. Everything's going to go wrong. That's what I heard over and over. I was being tormented. And it was, it was a horrible experience if you've ever heard that. I mean, it was fear, panic. And it was, I'm just trying to fight back this voice that was accusing, telling me lies. And then the morning of the surgery, I woke up and I looked up and I will never forget looking. I saw the ceiling and I saw the walls around me. I was in bed alone and I just, I woke up and he was gone. The accuser was gone, literally gone. And I had this sense of the presence of God filling that room. It was just this thick air, this thickness in the room that I cannot explain other than the fact that the presence of God was right there with me. And I heard in my, kind of inside of myself, I heard this voice prompt and say, I got it from here. I got it from here. I heard that. And he, Satan couldn't get in. He was outside and, and it was no voice. It was silenced. And all I had, all I was around, all that was around me was the presence of God. It was a glorious day. It was a day I will never forget until four days later post-surgery, home, waking up, put on some worship music, lying in bed, I began to weep uncontrollably. And I listened to another worship song, and then another worship song. And I would just listen to one after another, and I just, I don't know where Denise was at the time, but I was just weeping in bed. I was just uncontrollably weeping with joy, with a sense of comfort. I felt like I was in the presence of God. I woke up, and I looked up Psalm 27, one of my favorite verses, and I love this verse, but I never understood what it meant. One thing that I ask from the Lord that I shall seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. I never knew what that really meant until that morning. I now know what it means to go into the temple of God, to be in the presence of God, to be in his presence. All questions are silenced. Because you now are experiencing the almighty power of God in your life. And I sat down and I wrote, there is nothing more important in all my life than the presence of God in me. And Denise goes, even me? <laughs> I, wrote her, I read to her what I wrote in my journal. I said, yeah, everything. Because God's presence trumps everything in this life brings meaning to everything in this life. So the question this morning for all of you that are here, St. Gregory the Great, who was the Pope, back in 590 AD, wrote a book on the morality of Job. Fantastic. I, I just, just was reading through it quickly, but I was led to it by an author who said that he pointed out that the reason why God allows us to suffer, there's several reasons, but the one that I want to focus in on is the third one, and that is this. To lead us to the love of God ardently for himself alone. See, Gregory got it right. 
It leads us into the love of God, not away. You know, in the very end, J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien is right. He said, everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything sad in your life is going to come untrue. Think of that. It will all be reversed. Lewis said the same thing in, in The Great Divorce. You'll look back and you'll realize that it all makes sense. But as Kierkegaard says, the problem is we have to live life forward, not backwards. So let's pray together. So Father, as we come to the table, we recognize that what we're going to the table for is to meet with you, Jesus. You suffered greatly for us. You suffered the greatest amount of humiliation and shame. You died for us so that you might take away all suffering, all pain, and all hardship. God, you put that upon Jesus. And so this morning, we go to this table eagerly to meet with you, Jesus, to thank you, to remember your sacrifice, to be silenced by your presence. Oh, that we might find the temple of God and meditate in your beautiful, beautiful presence to behold your beauty, magnificent one. Lead us. Amen. Amen.